Chapter Seven of Harrington by Maria Edgeworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jenny Bradshaw. Chapter Seven. The bows and bells in the boxes of the crowded theatre had bowed and curtsied, for in those days bows did bow and bells did curtsy. The impatient sticks in the pit and the shrill catcalls in the gallery had begun to contend with the music in the orchestra and thrice had we surveyed the house to recognise everybody whom anybody knew when the door of the box next to ours the only box that had remained empty was thrown open and in poured an overdressed party whom nobody knew lady de brantefield after one reconnoitring glance pronounced them to be city goths and vandals and without resting her glass upon them for half a moment turned it to some more profitable field of speculation there was no gentleman of this party but a portly matron towering above the rest seemed to the principal mover and orderer of the group the awkward bustle they made facing and backing placing and changing of places and the difficulty they found in seating themselves were in striking contrast with the high-bred ease of the ladies of our party lady anne mowbray looked down upon their operations with a pretty air of quiet surprise tinctured with horror while my mother's shrinking delicacy endeavoured to suggest some idea of propriety to the city matron who having taken her station next to us in the second row had at last seated herself so that a considerable portion of the back part of her headdress was in my mother's face moreover the citizen's huge arm with its enormous gauze cuff leaning on the partition which divided or ought to have divided her from us considerably passed the line of demarcation lady de brantefield with all the pride of all the de brantefield since the norman conquest concentrated in her countenance threw an excommunicating withering look upon the arm but the elbow felt it not it never stirred the lady seemed not to be made of penetrable stuff in happy ignorance she sat fanning herself for a few seconds then suddenly starting and stretching forward to the front row where five of her young ladies were wedged she aimed with her fan at each of their backs in quick succession and in a more than audible whisper asked cici izzy henny queenie miss coates where's berry all eyes turned to look for berry oh mercy behind the back row miss berry that must not be come forward here's my place or queenie's cried mrs coates stretching backwards with her utmost might to seize some one in the farthest corner of the back row who had hitherto been invisible we expected to see in miss berry another vulgarian produced but to our surprise we beheld one who seemed of a different order of beings from those by whom she was surrounded lord mowbray and i looked at each other struck by the same sentiment pained for this elegant timid young creature as we saw her all blushing and reluctant forced by the irresistible fat orderer of all things to step up on the seat to step forward from bench to bench and then wait in painful pre-eminence while izzy and cecy and queenie and miss coates settled how they could make room or which should vacate her seat in her favour in spite of the awkwardness of her situation she stood with such quiet resigned yet dignified grace that ridicule could not touch her the moment she was seated with her back to us and out of hearing lady de brantefield turned to her son and asked who is she an east indian i should guess by her dark complexion whispered lady anne to me some feather or lappet intercepted my view of her face but from the glimpse i caught of it as she passed it struck me as uncommonly interesting though with a peculiar expression and foreign air whether she was handsome or not though called upon to decide i could not determine 
but now our attention was fixed on the stage it was announced to the audience that owing to the sudden illness of the actor who was to have performed the principal part in the comedy advertised for this night there was a necessity of changing the play and they should give in its stead the merchant of venice the merchant of venice and macklin the jew murmurs of discontent from the ladies in my box who regretted their sentimental comedy and their silver-toned barry were all lost upon me i rejoiced that i should see macklin in shylock before the performance began my attention was again caught by the proceedings of the persons in the next box there seemed to be some sudden cause of distress as i gathered from exclamations of how unlucky how distressing what shall we do what can we do better go away carriage gone must sit it out maybe she won't mind oh she will shylock jessica how unfortunate poor miss berry jessica whispered mowbray to me with an arch look let me pass added he just touching my shoulder he made his way to a young lady at the other end of the box and i occupying immediately the seated place stationed myself so that i had a better view of my object and could observe her without being seen by any one she was perfectly still and took no notice of the whisperings of the people about her though from an indescribable expression in the air of the back of her head and neck i was convinced that she heard all that passed among the young and old ladies in her box the play went on shylock appeared i forgot everything but him such a countenance such an expression of latent malice and revenge of everything detestable in human nature whether speaking or silent the jew fixed and kept possession of my attention it was an incomparable piece of acting much as my expectations had been raised it far surpassed anything i had conceived i forgot it was macklin i thought only of shylock in my enthusiasm i stood up i pressed forward i leaned far over towards the stage that i might not lose a word a look a gesture when the act finished as the curtain fell and the thunders of applause died away i heard a soft low sigh near me i looked and saw the jewess she had turned away from the young ladies her companions and had endeavoured to screen herself behind the pillar against which i had been leaning i had for the first time a full view of her face and of her countenance of great sensibility painfully proudly repressed she looked up while my eyes were fixed upon her a sudden and deep colour spread over her face and mounted to her temples in my confusion i did the very thing i should not have done and said the thing of all others i should not have said i expressed a fear that i had been standing in such a manner as to prevent her from seeing shylock she bowed mildly and was i believe going to speak you have indeed sir interrupted mrs coates stood so that nobody could see nothing but yourself so since you mention it and speak without an introduction excuse me if i suggest against the next act that this young lady has never been at a play before in her life in london at least and though it in the play i should have chose for her yet since she is here tis better she should see something than nothing if gentlemen will give her leave i bowed in sign of submission and repentance and was retiring so as to leave my place vacant and a full opening to the stage but in a sweet gentlewoman-like voice seeming perhaps more delightful from contrast the young lady said that she had seen and could see quite as much as she wished of the play and she begged that i would not quit my place i should oblige her she added in a low tone if i would continue to stand as i had done i obeyed and placed myself so as to screen her from observation during the whole of the next act but now my pleasure in the play was over i could no longer enjoy macklin's incomparable acting 
I was so apprehensive of the pain which it must give the young Jewess. At every stroke, characteristic of the skilful actor, or of the master poet, I felt a strange mixture of admiration and regret. I almost wished that Shakespeare had not written, or Macklin had not acted the part so powerfully. My imagination formed such a strong conception of the pain the Jewess was feeling, and my inverted sympathy, if I may so call it, so overpowered my direct and natural feelings, that at every fresh development of the Jew's villainy I shrunk as though I had myself been a Jew. Each exclamation against this dog of a Jew, and still more every general reflection on Jewish usury, avarice, and cruelty, I felt poignantly. No power of imagination could make me pity Shylock, but I felt the force of some of his appeals to justice, and some passages struck me in quite a new light on the Jewish side of the question. Many a time and oft, in the Rialto you have rated me, about my monies and my usances, still have I borne it with a patient shrug, for sufferance is the badge of all our tribe. You call me misbeliever, cutthroat dog, and spit upon my Jewish gabardine, and all for use of that which is my own. Well then, it now appears you need my help. Go to, then, you come to me and you say, Shylock, we would have monies, you say so. Shall I bend low and in a bondsman key, with bated breath and whispering humbleness, Say this, fair sir, you spit on me last Wednesday. You spurned me such a day another time, you called me dog, and for these courtesies I'll lend you thus much monies. As far as Shylock was concerned, I was well content he should be used in such a sort. But if it had been any other human creature, any other Jew even, if it had been poor Jacob, for instance, whose image crossed my recollection, I believe I should have taken part with him. Again, I was well satisfied that Antonio should have hindered Shylock of half a million, should have laughed at his losses, thwarted his bargains, cooled his friends, heated his enemies. Shylock deserved all this. But when he came to, what's his reason? I am a Jew. Hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions? Fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do not we die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we will resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge. If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferance be by Christian example? Why revenge? I felt at once horror of the individual Shylock, and submission to the strength of his appeal. During the third act, during the Jessica scenes, I longed so much to have a look at the Jewess, that I took an opportunity of changing my position. The ladies in our box were now so happily occupied with some young officers of the guards, that there was no farther danger of their staring at the Jewess. I was so placed that I could see her without being seen, and during the succeeding acts my attention was chiefly directed to the study of all the changes in her expressive countenance. I now saw and heard the play solely with reference to her feelings. I anticipated every stroke which could touch her, and became every moment more and more interested and delighted with her, from the perception that my anticipations were just, and that I perfectly knew how to read her soul and interpret her countenance. I saw that the struggle to repress her emotion was often the utmost she could endure. And at last I saw, or fancied I saw, that she grew so pale, 
that as she closed her eyes at the same instant i was certain she was going to faint and quite forgetting that i was an utter stranger to her i started forward and then unprovided with an apology could only turn to mrs coates and fear that the heat of the house was too much for this young lady mrs coates alarmed immediately wished they could get her out into the air and regretted that her gentlemen were not with their party to-night there could be no getting servants or carriage what could be done i eagerly offered my services which were accepted and we conducted the young lady out she did not faint she struggled against it and it was evident that there was no affectation in the case but on the contrary an anxious desire not to give trouble and a great dread of exposing herself to public observation the carriage as mrs coates repeated twenty times was ordered not to come till after the farce and she kept on hoping and hoping that miss berry would be stout enough to go back to see the maid of the oaks miss berry did her utmost to support herself and said she believed she was now quite well and could return but i saw she wished to get away and i ran to see if a chair could be had lord mowbray who had assisted in conducting the ladies out now followed me he saw and called to one of his footmen and dispatched him for a chair there now said mowbray we may leave the rest to mrs coates who can elbow her own way through it come back with me mrs abingdon plays lady babladoon her favourite character she is incomparable and i would not miss it for the world i begged mowbray to go back for i could not leave these ladies well said he parting from me and pursuing his own way i see how it is i see how it will be these things are ruled in heaven above or hell beneath tis in vain struggling with one's destiny so you to your jewess and i to my little jessica we shall have her again i hope in the farce the prettiest creature i ever saw mowbray hastened back to his box and how long it might be between my return to the jewess and the arrival of the chair i do not know it seemed to me not above two minutes but mowbray insisted upon it that it was a full quarter of an hour he came to me again just as i had received one look of silent gratitude and while i was putting the young lady into the chair and bustling mrs coates was giving her orders and address to the servant mowbray whispered me that my mother was in an agony and had sent him out to see what was become of me mrs coates all thanks and apologies and hurry now literally elbowed her way back to her box expressing her reiterated fears that we should lose the best part of the maid of the oaks which was the only farce she made it a rule ever to stay for in spite of her hurry and her incessant talking i named the thing i was intent upon i said that with her permission i should do myself the honour of calling upon her the next morning to inquire after miss berry's health i am sure sir she replied mr alderman coates and myself will be particularly glad of the honour of seeing you to-morrow or any time and moreover sir the young lady added she with a shrewd and to me offensive smile the young lady no doubt's well worth inquiring after a great heiress as the saying is as rich as a jew she'll be miss montenero miss montenero repeated lord mowbray and i in the same instant i thought said i this young lady's name was berry berry yes berry we call her we who are intimate i call her for short that is short for berenice which is her out-of-the-way christian that is jewish name mr montenero the father is a spanish or american jew i'm not clear which but he's a charming man for a jew and the daughter most uncommon fond of him to a degree can't now bear any reflections the most distant now sir upon the jews which was what distressed me when i found the play was to be this jew of venice and i would have come away only that i couldn't possibly 
here mrs coates without any mercy upon my curiosity about mr montenero and his daughter digressed into a subject utterly uninteresting to me and would explain to us the reasons why mr alderman coates and mr peter coates her son were not this night of her party this lasted till we reached her box and then she had so much to say to all the miss izzies cessies and hennies that it was with the utmost difficulty i could even by carefully watching my moment obtain a card with her own and another with miss montenero's address this time there was no danger of my losing it i rejoiced to see that miss montenero did not live with mrs coates for all further satisfaction of my curiosity i was obliged to wait till the next morning End of chapter 7 Recording by Jenny Bradshaw